Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We've talked about the so-called vinyl revival a number of times. We've talked about analog and how some people think analog sound is better. Spoiler, neither Doug nor I really think vinyl sounds that good. But a recent article in the Guardian newspaper, this was published on the 28th of January, made me rethink the issues of vinyl and CDs and even digital music. It's called Nightmares on Wax, the Environmental Impact of the Vinyl Revival. And I immediately got in touch with the author Kyle Devine, who is Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Oslo, to discuss his book, which is called Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music. Kyle, thank you for joining us on such short notice. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I have to say that we talk about music in many, many ways on this show. We talk about audio equipment. We talk about recording techniques. We talk about our favorite music. But this is the first time that I actually sat down and thought about what makes up these things that we use to play music, whether it's vinyl or even shellac. You, your book is divided into three major sections, shellac, vinyl, and data. And I never knew that 78 records were made of Beetlejuice. <laughs> it's true. It's true. They're made from, from yeah, lac beetle resin. Lac beetle resin doesn't sound as good as shellac. No. What you do is you lay out for these three, well, let's say two types of physical media and one type of ephemeral media, you lay out everything that's involved to manufacture them. This is an ecological nightmare, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I think certainly music has environmental implications that we aren't used to thinking of. Um, I mean, one thing that I always say when I when I talk about this research is that on the list of priorities in terms of addressing climate issue and, and you know, bad working conditions for people in other parts of the world, music is not high on that list, right? No. We don't need to worry about it as much as, as anything else. But the other thing that I that I usually say about that is that, is that I, you know, if music's contribution is smaller than other things, you know, I don't think that that's a good idea or that I don't think that's a good argument for ignoring music's contribution to the bigger picture or the ways that it is um, bound up with a lot of kind of nasty things. In a way, what you look at here could be a template for so many other objects that we buy. The, the fact of how resources are mined, the fact of how pollution is created, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I took inspiration from existing work that, that does that kind of research. Um, there's people out there studying iPhones and uh, different kinds of electronics and, you know, different products. Um, but, but I wasn't, I wasn't finding that perspective applied to music. Um, and I think, you know, I think there are reasons for that. And I think the reasons for that are that we're really used to thinking of music as this, you know, unqualified, you know, uh, good thing. Right. We don't think of records and CDs as manufactured products in the same way because they're cultural goods. Yeah, but at the end of the day, they are manufactured products just like any other manufactured product. You know, there might be beautiful or special music on an album, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a manufactured product um, manufactured in pretty similar ways to 
most other products. Yeah. So 78s made of shellac. My my father had a bunch of 78s. Doug, I'm sure your father had a stack of 78s too. Of course. We had one of those turntables that you could put to 16, 33 and a third, <laughs> 45 or 78, which was great fun when you played the 33 and a third records at 78 and vice versa. And they were thick and heavy. And I didn't realize that they were made of Beetlejuice and limestone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the 78 RPM format um, is made of many different materials, um, but shellac is a, is a super important ingredient, even though it's only about 15% of the total disc. Um, it's an important kind of binding agent and, and, and lubricant and things like that. Um, and most of that shellac, um, the record industry was purchasing that from uh, India. Um, and it's worth saying that the record industry wasn't sort of passively observing, you know, a big global shellac industry in the early 20th century. The record industry was actually driving the sort of global explosion of that industry because, you know, people were buying records like crazy. Well, what else does one do with shellac? I mean, you can use it as a lacquer on wood, can't you? Shellac, yeah, you can lacquer things with it. Um, there's sometimes controversy gets kicked up because people realize that it's used as, as coating on food. Um, oh, oh, right, on M&Ms. Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah, I don't remember the details, but people yeah. have this, this knowledge right. up from time to time and people get upset about it because it means, you know, technically shellac or a 78 RPM disc isn't vegan. Good point. And, and that's, you know, people get upset knowing that they're uh, ingesting bug, bug juice and, and haven't been told. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people are saying that as things go forward, we will start eating insects. So maybe it's time to go back to shellac. <laughs> Although you, you do mention that sort of rumble of shellac that comes from the limestone that underlies all of Robert Johnson's songs. It's pretty much unavoidable on those records. Yeah, so the majority of the records are made of, of well, limestone or slate or various kinds of crushed rocks. There's a ton of other, you know, little ingredients um, involved, but, but those, those are the main ones. Um, you know, and it was actually the case that companies like RCA and Columbia moved their facilities from the East Coast and, and, and uh, built facilities in Indiana, which is where the limestone was coming from. Um, the best, sort of highest quality and most limestone used by the U.S. record industry uh, in those days was from um, Indiana. It's very good to know the provenance of one's limestone used in records. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because we're used to thinking of like the great music centers in the United States as being Chicago and Detroit and Kansas City and Muscle Shoals and New York and L.A., but really it's the place in the country that has the best limestone, which kind of gives you an idea of, of the thinking of the music industry. It's like, we've got to sell more of these plastic discs. Yeah, as long as they can move units, that's all they care about, yeah. Yeah, more plastic discs with different sounds on them. We need to sell more, make more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about how often people don't uh, consider these issues, but you know, anybody who worked at a record pressing plant or a shellac factory who read my book would say, yeah, this is like, this is my everyday world, right? This isn't re remarkable. This is just, this is the meat and potatoes of the record industry. What I find interesting is that the industry back then, it was called what, the talking machine industry? Yeah. Yet 
spoken word wasn't the main reason for making shellac records, was it? Um, I'm just trying to think here. So, I mean, talking machine was a, I'm, I'm actually not going to remember the, the exact origin of that phrase, but it would have been early, I think, in the late 19th century. Um, yeah. And, and they were called talking machines, I think, because, you know, very common would be to record a voice. And the, the, one of the main um, kinds of rhetoric that surrounded this bizarre and interesting new invention um, was about preserving the voice of someone beyond their death. His master's voice. That was another one as well, yeah. Yeah. So we, we get through World War II, and the recording industry realizes that shellac is not the wave of the future, and they become intensely interested in better living through chemistry. Yeah. So the story is well known in the mid-20th century about you know the LP and the 45 and why those came out and why they were invented. And the story is often pitched as a, a story of sound quality, right? The LP especially sounded great. It was longer. Um, you know, it had all these advantages. And there's some truth to that. But it's also um, a story about war and the rise of the, you know, the, the chemical industries through the 20th century, plastics industry especially. Um, so the war, the war matters because key shellac producing regions had been blocked essentially, and shellac was also required for military uses, so its use was limited, which meant that to make records, people at the time had incentive or extra incentive to to consider other materials. But you also talk at one point about how there were drives to get people to give back old records that they didn't want to keep so they could be recycled. Yeah, scrap drives uh, yeah. were a big thing. And they would put, uh, you know, they'd send people into schools or homes and try and get them to, to um, gather up old records. Or, you know, if you wanted, you could, I think, um, trade in, you know, 10 records to get one new record and, and these kinds of things. Um, so they were, yeah, there were a bunch of different kinds of scrap drives in the U S Canada, the UK, probably elsewhere too. Um, but they, they were still looking for another material and, uh, plastic existed, right? They, you know, it's less well known, but people have been using plastic in different kinds of records, synthetic, fully synthetic plastic, PVC-like materials since as early as the 1930s. But just not uh, in mass-produced? They weren't mass-produced. They were more limited uh, in their usage. So one thing that was relatively popular um, were these things called kid discs. Yeah, I had never heard of that. Yeah, so children's music. And that, they say, is, is probably the first, where vinyl records found their first mass market, um, which I really like as a story because it contrasts with the usual way of thinking about the history of, of the record industry at that moment, rising sound quality and hi-fi, because these records, you know, were favored for, for children because kids were careless and because these records were durable and, and it wasn't about their sound quality. It was just durability and availability. Yeah. So we get to vinyl and things stabilized for a long time until the CD came out, but Essentially, we have a really dirty technology to create records that all of a sudden are hip for some people. And I was mentioning before we started recording that you've got a lot of 
millennials buying vinyl records who probably don't realize how much pollution they're creating. Yeah, I mean, this is you know one thing, and I don't have you know hard hard evidence for this, but it's it's sort of an interesting irony of of people who are buying records again is that anecdotally in my experience you know the friends i have who are buying records again uh are also the friends that are more likely to buy organic groceries or drive an electric car um and and it's because of that sort of mythology and and romance that that surrounds vinyl that allows it to be sort of i think mentally for a lot of people categorized with other other things like organic groceries or whatever but it's actually you know plastic which is oil it's dead dinosaur juice sold by petro oligarchs um (laughs) or or pulled out of shale in canada and the united states and it's probably i mean we're not going to say what the dirtiest technologies are we're not going to rank them but it's certainly up there anything that's produced from oil is certainly up there and today if people are going to try and pay attention to that sort of thing uh, I, I, I mean, that's what really got me in your article in The Guardian, which is like all of this is happening at a time where there is a, an increased consciousness of the issues around climate change. And the hipness of this contrasts so much with the, the actual way that these things are made. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's a really interesting sort of tension or cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Did, did you see that there was a fire the other day in one of the two vinyl lacquer factories in the world? So the vinyl lacquer is the master that's used to press records, and one of them burned down. I had heard something about this. Yeah, a few people sent me an article saying that, uh, yeah, this is one of two places and that the, the sort of capacity um, to get the lacquers was already stretched. Um, yeah. And so this is this is bad news. So where does this vinyl, well, PVC, where does it come from and how is it made? The subtitle to your Guardian article, From Toxic Wastewater to Greenhouse Gas Emissions, the Boom in Vinyl Has Dangerous Effects. Really uplifting subtitle there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to work on a topic that isn't uplifting, right? Yeah. The book is not uplifting. The realities are not uplifting. And that stands in stark contrast to the ways that most people are used to thinking about music and feeling about music and valuing music. So it's, it's more sort of weird cognitive dissonance. Um, so you're kind of the Grinch of musicology here. Yeah. When I So I teach on this subject as well, and I found out um, not so long ago that I have a reputation among students as the music hater. <laughs> and you know, I, it's because you're 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 it's it's truth to power isn't it there's there's an element of that yeah and the way the way though that i try and explain this to students when i hear that they're calling me the music hater is that those of us who believe most in the beauty or goodness of music those of us who love music most should actually be the first to be concerned about its potentially negative consequences, right? We shouldn't be the people who are saying, no, 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 shielding ourselves from the realities to just sort of, or bury our heads in the sand and just say, no, music's great, we're fine. It's not as big a problem as anything else. We'll just leave it. Well, if they're going to complain about the way Nike sneakers are made, they need to complain about the way the PVC is made in unregulated factories in Thailand. 
Yeah. So that gets back to the question you asked is where this stuff comes from. Um, it, this, this PVC for a lot of us based record pressing plants today comes from something called the Thai plastic and chemicals public company limited, which is headquartered in Bangkok. Um, and I mean, I started the book, the book starts in some ways, the research started with a journey where I went to a record pressing plant in the States and it's, a, you know, these, if you've been to one, they're fascinating operations, big old machines and great smells and noises. And it's just, I love it <laughs> on some level. And I wanted to know, and they, what they have is this sort of lentil-like plastic pellets that get funneled into the machine that gets melted into a puck and that gets pressed to make a record. And I wanted to know where those little lentil-like plastic pellets came from. And they wouldn't tell me. Ah, they wouldn't tell you. No. Wholesale customers of, of plastic vinyl like that agree not to mention their wholesale suppliers. At least that's what I was told. So you don't know if it's the actual oil companies that make the conversion of crude to these pellets or if it's another intermediary who buys the crude and pollutes the atmosphere making the conversion. Well, so they wouldn't tell me which company made these plastic pellets, but they had these sort of refrigerator-sized cardboard boxes sitting around on the pressing floor and then they had letters on big red letters on them said product of thailand so i did a little digging and, and found out that it was this tpc thai plastic and chemicals um company that was probably the source um so the way that it works is is that they have a factory just south of bangkok where they bring together different elements they bring they bring together the pvc and several different additives that make it suitable for record pressing. The raw PVC is manufactured in on the Gulf of Thailand, southeast of there, um, and that is a refinery. So in terms of where, and that, that refinery is operated mainly by TPC's parent company, which is uh, SCG Chemicals, which is one of the largest petrochemical manufacturers in Asia. Where they're getting the actual oils and gases from, right? That's you know, I. Yeah, that's not really important. I I couldn't figure it out, and they sure as heck weren't. Then they're not going <laughs> to tell you. Yeah, yeah. So the the process is, I mean, the process is messy. Dealing with dead dinosaurs is messy, and the result is so clean. You always, every once in a while, you see a, a video of one of these pressing plants, and you have these women with the the hair nets and the white gloves and checking them and all this. And just like you know, when we were young, well, when Doug and I were young, when we'd hear about plastic, how plastic was so futuristic and Jetsons like, and it does kind of mask everything that goes on in the background, doesn't it? It's, I mean, again, we could say this about any manufactured product today, but it's true that things that are, do this from oil are particularly messy. J just one little note is that today, the big deal is you have to get 180 gram vinyl records. That's probably twice as thick and twice as heavy as what we had when we were young. Yeah, more, more, uh, more plastic, more oil. <laughs> well, to be fair, every once in a while, someone posts on the internet a bar chart showing the progression of vinyl. But you notice they only show for like the past 10 years because if you go further back, it was way up here and then it comes down and then there's this little bump. So it's still somewhat minimal. So after vinyl, we get to CD. It's a different plastic, but it's not that much cleaner overall, is it? 
No, I mean, so CDs, the main plastic in the disc itself is called polycarbonate. And so PVC, PVC is a particularly nasty plastic. Um, and that's not even thinking about, you know, the stabilizers that are, I think, still in the U.S. used are, are lead-based. Um, so that's additionally nasty business. Um, polycarbonate or PC is a bit, you know, cleaner, but it's still ultimately an oil product. Yeah. Um, and, and what happens with the CD, I mean, a CD is, of course, much smaller than a record and uses much less plastic. But what's going on at that point in the history of the record industry is that the, you know, they're, they're not using less plastic, absolutely. Um, they're using as much or more plastic, despite the fact that each individual unit is using so little plastic comparatively because the sales have increased so much. And because the jewel boxes are also made of plastics, unless it's a digipack. So you don't really – you can get CDs in sleeves, and, and I've got big classical box sets where the CDs roll in cardboard sleeves, but most of them are sold by unit in plastic. One of the things we, we skipped over, cassettes, eight tracks, um, recording tape, is that all – I mean, that's probably a smaller issue, but still, those things had to be made somewhere, and they're made out of plastic. Absolutely. So I don't get into, I haven't been able to find out any information about, you know, the countless, you know, millions of kilometers of tape that must have been in use in. Of tangled field, tape in landfills. Radio studio, you know, all of that. Sure. No idea how to find that information out. Um, but, you know, I do talk a bit about cassettes and 45s in the book, not so much um, eight tracks, but. Um, Everyone wants to forget eight tracks. <laughs> yeah, just as well you erase them from history, so that's fine. <laughs> is recording tape made of mylar? Is that what the plastic is, along with what, ferrous oxide? Ferrous oxide is, is on there. Um, I think, as far as I remember, the most common material used in the tape itself is called polyester terephthalate. Oh, okay. And the, the and that word talate is something I've heard before, P-T-H-A-L-A-T-E, because it's particularly noxious in terms of hormonal activity or something, isn't it? The, the talates are a family of plastic additives. See, this I didn't know. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, you should, look, you should look this up. There is something that talates cause asthma or period problems in women. There's something... Have you ever smelled burning tape? It's not pleasant. It's really not. No, right. It's very noxious. So, okay, now we got to get to today because today we think that music being dematerialized is a lot greener. It's in bits and bytes. And, okay, we know that there are server farms and we know that they have to be air conditioned all the time. But we don't really think of how much of what the environmental impact is of this form of data. Yeah, so that that was one of the main things that I came up against in writing the book. It was one of the main reasons that I started writing the book in the first place, right? Because I kept encountering two ideas in, you know, reading journalism or speaking to friends and colleagues or whatever, you know, everyday life. Two ideas, and they seem to reinforce one another in a problematic way. So the first idea is is this old notion that music is the most immaterial of the arts, right? The second notion is that the history of recorded music can be told as a story of dematerialization, 
right? The way that this is often framed is as a move from physical disks to invisible digits, right? This is a, this is a history where we've moved from the physical to the digital. And so those ideas kind of, of reinforce one another, I think. They prevent us from thinking about some of these realities. But, you know, the, the, the reality, well, the reality of it is, is that the, the rhetoric of talking about physical versus digital doesn't really describe the situation, right? It certainly describes how most people feel about music once it's something that is downloaded and streamed more than, you know, put in a, a player of some sort or whatever. And, and stored on shelves or in piles, yeah. Yeah, so, the, you know, there's there's some... I understand why people say those things and why people feel those things. They're legitimate. But at the level that I was looking at it about those sort of realities of digital music, whether downloaded or streamed, is that that physical to digital thing doesn't describe what's going on because the digital is physical, right? And the way that people, the easiest way to explain this, and this isn't my parallel, but the easiest way to explain this is to say that, you know, even data are physical. They're just so small that they're invisible. And the, the way to illustrate their sort of physicality or whatever is to say that if data weren't physical, your hard drive would never fill up. Okay, we're going to skip the um, Schrodinger's hard drive and quantum physics element here. Um, uh, but I think, I think what's more important is not so much that, it's that there is... So I have a hard drive with all my music. I have another hard drive to back up all my music, and I have another hard drive to back up that hard drive, and I back it up online as well. And the server farms that are providing music through Apple Music or Spotify have multiple redundancies. They have content delivery networks around the world, any piece of music that I'm going to stream from a streaming service is replicated maybe a hundred times, maybe a thousand times just on the server side, not even to mention on everyone's computer when they stream it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't talk about that, that sort of backup and redundancy stuff in the book, but it's certainly a part of the story. And, and so when, when we have, when we move from the physical to the digital, people expect, well, music is poof. It's, in, it's up in the air. Um, and, and therefore, right, obviously, moving to online streaming with music is better for the environment than buying CDs or buying records or buying shellac. And what I tried to do is, is to compare the amount of plastics used and the amount of greenhouse gases that would have been generated by the record industry's use of plastics to the amount of greenhouse gas equivalents that are released through data storage processing and transmission, you know, because you mentioned the server farms. Yeah. Um, these, all of these server farms with all of their backups and redundancies, they all use a ton of energy, not just for air conditioning, but actual processing and transmission and all of that as well. And all of those servers and processing centers and transmission infrastructure, those are all dependent on their local electricity grids. Right. So, depending on where you are in the world, you, listening to Spotify means burning uranium, coal, natural gas, right? If you're, if you're in Finland, maybe it's hydropower, mm. um, but it, it depends. And maybe it's probably a mixture of all of them all the time. 
But what it also means is that, let's say, the music is coming from Apple in the United States. It's being replicated in a content delivery server someplace in the UK. It's going over cables under sea. It's going – so it, it has a lot of hops be, between where it starts and where it ends up. So there's electricity at every point along that. It's not just a point-to-point -point thing. No, exactly. It, the, the internet uses a lot of energy. I mean – and one yeah. of the reasons it's, it's – sort of hard to explain that and people don't like <laughs> some people almost disbelieve me when I talk about these things right because it's so counterintuitive and you know for me to download an, or stream an album or a song you would use virtually no energy right almost nothing and that's what makes it seem like you know this idea of moving from the physical to the digital that's what makes it seem like digital music is immaterial. But once you add up the fact that billions of people are doing this constantly and you, you get a kind of aggregate effect and the aggregate energy effect is, it turns out, pretty big. To, to be fair, music is minuscule compared to video. Yep, absolutely. Oh, yeah. is and there's, there's always a comparison to make. Music is minuscule compared to porn, let's face it. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, maybe you should do a book about the environmental impact of the porn industry. That would probably be a big seller. Um, I, I joke, but all of this video stuff, and most people don't realize how much, again, how, how much is like a, a reproductive effect as things go from one place to another on and on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I mean, music, you know, in addition to not being on the top of the list of, you know, things that we need to care about, it's not even on the top of the list of forms of culture that are using the most energy, right? It's not even on the list. It's not even on people's radar as something they could reduce to lower their carbon footprint, which seems to be a thing that people think has an effect on global warming. But it, I mean, it should be. I don't know. Why isn't it? I would argue, sorry to cut you off, Kyle, I would argue that we are confronted with so many things that we have to do to reduce our carbon front footprint. I mean, okay, hamburgers and flying on planes, okay, that's bad enough. Please don't take my music away from me. And as you say, it's not a consideration. You don't, it's not something that's upfront about the way music is, 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 is used anyway. So why would it even come up as a suggestion. Of I was very surprised to learn, I don't know if you're familiar with the two books that William Volman wrote about climate a couple years ago. They're massive. Eight or, if you don't know William Volman, he writes huge books. And one of them is about coal and the other is about nuclear. And he points out in the 200-page introduction which sectors emit the most CO2. And the first one is something I had never thought of. It's concrete and cement. And I don't remember if it's 8% or 16% of CO2 in the world, but just the way it's processed is a huge amount of things that are cooked. I think maybe the second is aluminum. The amount of electricity used to make aluminum is just extraordinary. So we can boycott concrete and cement. <laughs> I don't buy it often. I could do without aluminum. I use stainless steel in, in my kitchen for all my pots and pans, but... I'm only going to be able to use stones and sticks the way you're going. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it, it has been a reaction to the book where people say, you know, so, oh, first I had to think about my clothing or my shoes. Then I had to think about my light bulbs. Right. Then I had to think about my car. And now you're telling me I got to think about music, too? Yes. You know, and, and yep. I understand that reaction. But really, the point of this, of doing this research was never to make any individual person feel guilty, right? 
it was to point out a big system issue that has a long history. Um, yeah. The point was never to make individuals feel like they had to stop buying vinyl records or that they couldn't stream or that they had to like monitor the amount of time that they spent streaming. Um, it was, it was to have a broader conversation. Um, and, and yeah, not, not, not one focused on individual guilt because I don't think that will, uh, I don't think that's very productive. <laughs> okay. This has just been really wonderful. Let's just end with what's your favorite music. Oh, Wow. What what what's your genre? What's your go-to album for? What are you burning up the atmosphere listening <laughs> to? <laughs> Yikes! Um, I see a book on the bookshelf behind you about Bop, so you must like jazz. I do like jazz a fair bit. That's an excellent book by uh, Scott DeVoe, uh, History Bebop. I do like jazz a fair bit. I've what am I listening to a lot these days? Um, I'm a sucker for the band Big Thief. Do some nice stuff. I don't know. I guess I kind of listen to, uh, well, I listen to some punk rock. I listen to some, you know, bones of, uh, a typical, stereotypical, some kind of indie music. I really like a band called Silkworm. Typical, um, stereotypical indie music. I thought the whole point of indie music was that it wasn't stereotypical. <laughs> when did that happen? Uh, it's stereotypical for, for me, right? Yeah. A, a white guy in his 30s, you know, it's... Grew up in the 90s. I'm going to be listening to indie music. <laughs> okay. You've got another book coming out sometime this year called Audible Infrastructures Music Sound Media. Quickly, what's that about? That is about – so it it doesn't exactly, but it kind of extends the decomposed book, right? Because I realized very quickly writing the decomposed book that, oh, well, you could do this with any music commodity, Right with guitars, with you know anything. Um, so I got I got uh, I started working with a colleague in Canada called Alexandrine Boudreau-Fournier, who's a wonderful anthropologist, and who was doing work on um, the lack of of reliable telecoms infrastructure in Cuba, and how this actually led people to make music in very unique ways. Um, anyway. So it's it it it's the infrastructures book extends the kind of thinking in the decomposed book, but it doesn't focus on records. It focuses on other forms of infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, and how that matters for music. It focuses on waste and and, and uh, repurposed music technologies. There is a chapter on shellac. Um, there's also a really fascinating chapter on mica, which was. Super. What's mica used for? Mica was used in the early gramophones or phonographs. It was uh, like an amplifying diaphragm. So oh, ah, okay. Uh, and then yeah. once tubes were introduced and things became electrified, mica is an important insulator in, in tubes for radios and, and phonographs right. and all of that. Okay. Um, the spoiler alert, the story of mica mining is not a good one. <laughs> Did you interview Pete Townsend and ask why he trashed all those guitars? <laughs> I should have. There is a chapter in the, in the infrastructures book um, on Gibson and their use of, of uh, well, their, their cultivation of mahogany in Fiji. Oh. Okay. 
Well, we, we look forward to that and keep in touch. We'd love to have you back to talk about this because uh, personally, I find this really fascinating to look at what's behind the music, to see all of the things that we don't see. You know, in a way, it's like one of those documentaries where we're going to tell you how this is made and you never expected that, you know, Beetlejuice was used. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. The book is in some ways a kind of how it's made little documentary. Thank you very much, Kyle. It was great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you both. Thanks again for the invite. All right. Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to do our next tracks, and I'm sure you've picked something interesting and absolutely delightful. Well, I was actually looking for something that had a link with vinyl, and I was trying to think of records I had when I was young, and then I thought, well, it really doesn't make that much of a difference if it's vinyl. Yeah, you're, you're messing up the atmosphere no matter what you, you listen to. Exactly. But I came across something on Apple Music just the other day, and I haven't listened to it yet, but I have clicked the little thing to say I want to listen to this later. It's called a visual album. It is Andras Schiff playing box, Well-Tempered Clavier, book one. And it is a visual album because it is a series of 24 music videos. So you get the music and you get to watch him playing. Now, this is basically just a, a video of a concert recorded in Royal Albert Hall in London in 2017 that's been split up into individual tracks of the individual preludes and fugues. But the fact that they've released this on Apple Music, presumably other streaming services, I find really interesting. They're marketing it as an album, not as individual music videos. So you can listen to the whole album and essentially watch the concert while you're doing it. It's a full performance. There's no retakes or anything like that. No, and, and that's the thing. There, there is a huge market for live videos of classical concerts and of operas. And back in the day when I used to review a lot of stuff for Music Web International, I reviewed a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays. There are a number of different reasons why there are TV channels here in Europe that um, show nothing but um, classical music, dance, opera, etc. So there's quite a large market. I mean, large. They sell a few thousand on DVD, but they also sell the rights to stream. You can find some of these on Amazon, to a lesser extent, Netflix. But what I find interesting is that they've realized now, well, hey, we've got this content. We've marketed it to the people who care about having a DVD or Blu-ray. Now we can market it as streaming. And you know what? We can split it up into the individual tracks. So we're not trying to stream an entire concert. And I find this approach really interesting. So link in the show notes, if you're into Andra Schiff, who I think is one of the, the best living pianists of Bach, one hour, 47 minutes. This is only book one. I presume that there's going to be a book two at some point, because as everyone knows, there are two books of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Speaking of reformatting stuff you've already bought, so you'll buy it again, Cream is coming out this week, I think, with a, a new live album. It's called Cream Goodbye Tour Live 1968. It's a bunch of live Cream performances, four on four CDs. Most of this stuff has been released already, but some of it hasn't. Apparently, they found a concert performance done in San Diego uh, that's been locked up for 50 years and they pulled that one out and remastered it and made it cleaned it up a little bit it doesn't sound that great there are, i've currently only heard two songs from the album they haven't released it fully yet as of this as of this recording date um but it's due in a couple of days the version of crossroads is the one is the new one that came from san diego that doesn't sound great but the one that sounds pretty good is sunshine of your love absolutely a fantastic 
recording of it. I think it's already been released. There are several live albums, official live Cream albums. This kind of takes those concerts and uh, fills in with stuff that hasn't been released before. There's also a remastered version of their final Royal Albert Hall concert, which, I don't know, that's been available for a long time, too. It's been remastered, so why not throw it in there? But I'm looking forward to hearing all this. The, the two tracks they have released so far are just really amazing. It's, it shows off the, the three guys' prowess. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing that these three guys hated each other off stage, but played so well together in a live performance. So it's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to grab it as soon as it becomes available. Cream, Goodbye Tour, Live 1968. This was episode number 169 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review even, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, just spread the word. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.